All right, well, we are going to be in Acts chapter 1, first three verses. I told Robbie when we kind of outlined this, and, and Robbie had put the first uh, section as the beginnings and the foundation of the church. And I said, was oh, that all you want me to cover in the first sermon? Like, how long do you expect this sermon to be? He goes, just the first three verses, Jay, just the first three verses. So that's what I'm going to do. We get to talk about the other ones later, but this is part of the fun of going through a book of the Bible, and I am telling you, I could not be more excited. Because one, I love teaching through books of the Bible, but I love Acts. And it should not surprise you as a, um, as a missionary that I just, Acts has always been so inspiring to me, and so I am, I am really, really excited about this. So, let me read it. I just want to pray quickly for God's blessing on this message And then we're going to roll. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Father, help us to be faithful. Help me to be faithful in the communicating of your word. Help us to be faithful in the hearing of your word. And again, Lord, help us to love it and to do what it says. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do is kind of do what Luke does here, which is kind of set the stage for what is to come and then say like, okay, well then how, how do we read a book like Acts? How do, we, how do we apply this? How do we find this to be meaningful and powerful in our lives? And so I already just kind of gave away part of it that who wrote it? Luke wrote this and this is a, a sequel to his, the gospel of Luke. And so I always got uh, confused by that because I thought, well, why wouldn't Acts come right after Luke? But you have to understand that um, in our westernized culture, we find chronology to be very important. We like to tell stories in order of things, and so that's a big deal. It was not a big deal then, and so thematically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all uh, fit together. They're the synoptic gospels, and then John was written much later and is, um, is a little different than the other three. So that's why John is placed after those three, and then we go with Acts. So Acts is the sequel to Luke. And if you've noticed there, um, Theophilus is mentioned also in the beginning of Luke. We aren't, you know, we're not 100% sure who Theophilus was, but, but certainly he, he somehow either commissioned this and, and asked for Luke to, to write this for him, um, to give an account of Jesus, an account of the, the work of Jesus, and then the beginnings of the church. And in this opening paragraph, Luke sets the stage for the rest of the book. He talks about, he says, I have dealt with, in the first book, he says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the word began there is very important. Luke is saying that this work is continuing. He's like, everything that you read in my first book, in the gospel account, that was just the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. And this is part two. So he said, I I told you what he did and what he taught. That's the foundation of everything that I'm about to tell you. It's kind of like, you know, 
some of you are old enough to remember when you couldn't just watch whatever TV show you wanted whenever you wanted to, like in your, from your pocket, you know. There was a day where we actually had to show up at an appointed time to watch a TV show. Like some of you are nodding, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Stop it. You're not, you're not old enough. But the rest of you, like you know that you have to show up. And what they would always do in, in shows that were designed as like one big story, what would they do at the beginning of that show? They would say previously on whatever show it was, right? And they would show you a series of highlights that you needed to know to remember so that you could watch that. Once, once binging became a thing, it was, it was pointless because you're like, yeah, I just watched that 20 minutes ago. Why do I need to know that? So like, that's a thing. So this, this is kind of what Luke is doing here. He's kind of like this previously on the kingdom of God, you know, and then he talks about, just kind of lays foundation. Here are the things you got to remember. And it's very short. It's very brief. But he says some really important things. He says in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them. So now he's telling them like what's happening. He presents himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them. So he's, he's laying this foundation. He's trying to bring to the mind of Theophilus and all the readers all of these things that had taken place. All that Jesus had done and taught. The ministry of Jesus. He would want Theophilus and for us as we read that to be considering, remembering, okay, all the things that Jesus did. You start remembering the, the healings, the miracles, the healing of the, the blind, the exercising of demons. All the things that he taught. Think about the Sermon on the Mount and the lessons along the road. The teachings about the kingdom of God. The commands that he had given them. The great commission to go and be his witnesses. The commands to love one another. And he reminds Theophilus and all the readers that all of this was done through the Holy Spirit. And that all of this was just the beginning. And now he's setting the stage for the sequel. And he says, after all that happened, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In, in one key verse, Luke is telling Theophilus all those things that Jesus did, all the stories you've heard about them, about Jesus, about what he taught, about, about how he healed people, about what he proclaimed the future held. All those things that you are now remembering He's saying they're all true. And what evidence does he give to convince Theophilus of this? The resurrection. Jesus proved it. Because if Theophilus or his readers are going to believe the incredible stories that Luke has in mind, that he's going to write out, then the readers need to have the life of Jesus in mind. They need to have the death of Jesus in mind. But they need to have the resurrection of Jesus in mind. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that will make sense of all the incredible stories he's about to hear. 
Like the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that could explain the lives of the people in the early church. It's the only thing that could explain the power that he would see on display in the early church. It is the only thing that could display, that could make sense of the faith that is on display in the early church. Like think about what would happen to these guys. The, the, the things that Luke knows as he's writing this down. A future of imprisonment and torture and death. Why would they live the rest of their lives like this? It's because they believed. Because all, of, all that Jesus promised them, they believed. Because he rose from the dead and they saw it. Like he offered them proof by being with them for 40 days. Like the strongest evidence that Jesus is God is that Jesus rose from the dead. And the strongest evidence that he rose from the dead is the behavior of the apostles and the early church afterward who saw him. Like Luke is specifically saying, like unless you think that this is some kind of belief system or philosophy or something that somebody had a vision of or anything like that, and they just started following that, understand that Jesus was with them. He made it very clear that he rose from the dead and was with them and offered many proofs to them. Like I don't know how many proofs I would need that he rose from the dead, but he gave them many. And if those early disciples, if those apostles, if the early church saw Jesus as a great philosopher, then they would have adapted the things that he said to kind of fit into their context, and they would have lived relatively normal lives. If they just saw him as a great teacher, they would have found another teacher to help them more fully understand the ways of God. If they had seen him as a revolutionary political leader, they would have given up on the movement or found somebody to replace him. But the reason they lived the lives that they lived moving forward is because they believed him to be the Son of God. And ultimately, the proof was not just the wisdom of his teachings or the compassion of his ministry, but because he rose from the dead. They saw it with their own eyes, and they could never unsee it, no matter what would come. So Luke wants that to be in the reader's minds. Remember, as we read Acts, what Jesus did. Remember what he taught and remember that in the resurrection, we have confidence that it is all true. And notice, what did he talk about during that time? It was 40 days when he's with them. Does he talk to them about the kingdom of God? Isn't that fascinating? Like, just think for a second. He's been murdered. He's rose from the dead. And he talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about where they're all going, where he's going, how glorious that is. Everything that happened on earth is just like, a, it's a vapor, it's a mist. The kingdom of God is real. There's no record of him talking about revenge against the Romans or the Jewish leaders. No record of big I told you so's. 
No, no record of him talking about God's vengeance. He's telling them about the kingdom. You ever wonder why the early church, the apostles, they don't ever go after the, the Jewish leaders whose false accusations led to Jesus being put to death? You ever wonder why they didn't revolt against the Roman government? Because Jesus didn't talk about any of that. He had far more important things to talk about. The kingdom, their mission, their identity. That's all that mattered. And all of that mattered because he rose from the dead. Look, if you, if you don't believe that, then none of this will make sense. If you don't truly believe that down in, in your depths, then you will find ways to explain away the things that you will read and hear in the book of Acts. You'll find ways to kind of translate it and say, okay, well, this is a different time, and so you know, we, have to, we have to be more reasonable and more rational about these things. But it won't change you. It won't make sense. You won't understand why they were compelled to live the way that they lived. But if you believe him, then everything changes. If you don't believe, you'll find yourself being swept up into all kinds of side stories of what's going on in the temporary world. But if you do believe that he rose from the dead, then you'll hang on his every word and you will watch the story of how the early church unfolded of people who believed him who believed what he taught, who believed that he was who he said he was. And they believed it all because they believed he rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that the work that he promised to do has been done, that we have been reconciled to God through faith, given a new story and a new identity and a new purpose. This is the story that Acts tells and we are a continuation of that story. And that's the foundation that we need to read and understand and apply the book of Acts. So let's say we do have that. We're there. Like, well, then how do you, how do you approach Acts? Because it's, it's unlike other books in the New Testament. Well, one thing to understand, just to kind of a sidebar here of how, how we approach the book of Acts, is to understand that, that it, is, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's a story. It's a narrative story of how the church was born. So the difference between those prescriptive is like commands and statements of how Christians should live. How we should think, how we should function, what we are to believe. The, the epistles are prescriptive by and large. They, they tell us, like, this is who God is. This is, what we are, this, is, this is what we are called to believe. This is how we are called to live. These are commands. But descriptive is, is a narrative. It's just describing what happened. It's telling the story of, of what was felt, what was done, how people responded, how they interacted. And because of that, we sometimes take the narrative passages and we feel like they're just a little, they're a little foggy. And so we like the prescriptive. Like in our culture, in our like kind of post-enlightenment, westernized culture, we like prescriptive. We like to know, okay, tell me what to believe and what to do. 
And we tend to not really know what to do with the story of how God's people actually lived. But it's critical. Because descriptive is is not a license to be dismissive. And we often fall into that. And so we want to make everything prescriptive. So we fall into one of these two ditches. We, like, for example... Um, I was big into the house church movement back in, in Colorado and planted many house churches and it's always been a deep love of mine both domestically and internationally. And we often would fall into two ditches with that when we look at the book of Acts. So the early church met in houses. We know they met in houses because they said they met in houses. Right? But that doesn't mean we have to meet in houses. It also doesn't mean we can't meet in houses. If you see, like, that's just such a simple, straightforward example. We look at the book of Acts. But what we really need to be asking is, why did they meet in houses? What was happening in those houses? That's what we should be concerned about. Like, why did they make the decisions that they did? What was the response? How did God respond? What was the fruit of that? So another example, when we see people imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and God breaks them out of jail, we don't want to fall into one ditch and say, well, that's our evangelism strategy. All right, everybody break the law and get thrown into prison. All right, who's with me? There's like two of you are like, yeah, I can do that. All right, I'm free this afternoon. Right, that, that could be one ditch we could fall into. But we also don't look at that and say, well, that passage is irrelevant. Or we have to avoid prison at all costs. Like we can't possibly witness to the gospel if we're in prison. That would be another ditch that we would fall into. But instead we look at that and say, well, why were they arrested? What was their attitude about being arrested? How did God work through that? What would that look like today? Because the book of Acts is a story of how the first believers lived when they had heard what Jesus said, they had seen what Jesus had done, and they believed who he was, and they walked in the power of the Holy Spirit together. And their story is our story. This is why I get so excited about it. Like the same Jesus that they heard is the same Jesus we hear through the scriptures. Right? The same belief that they had in the resurrection of Jesus is the same belief that we have in the same resurrection of the same Jesus. And the Holy Spirit that empowered them is the same Holy Spirit who empowers us today. That's critical. So not only do we need to have this foundation and and believe in the resurrection that Jesus rose from the dead, but we have to believe that the Holy Spirit that moved through the early church is the same Holy Spirit who moves in us today. We see miraculous things happen in the early church. And those same things are still happening today across the world. Like we don't look at that and say, well, you know, the, the Holy Spirit moved more powerfully in the, in the lives of, of the believers in the early church. 
But now we've reached this different age of reason. So we don't, we don't really need that anymore because now we're just, we're just wiser as human beings. Like that's, that's humanism, by the way. That's a whole worldview that's very anti to Christian, but it kind of has swept into like where we believe that humans are just becoming more and more wise and more and more um, just evolved into like greater beings. Like if you look at the history of the world, you realize like this is not the case, Right? Like, none of us are as smart, you know, or, or as, as brilliant as, like, Leonardo da Vinci. Like, nobody. Like people aren't getting better at any of this stuff. We just build on the foundation before us. We may have gained more knowledge, more information, but we're not wiser than we have been ever. And so there's this belief that, we like, we don't need that anymore, that that was a primitive society, and so they needed that. No, it wasn't. The Holy Spirit still moves. And then we almost end up acting like, well, that was when the Holy Spirit was young and spry and new. Come on. The Holy Spirit is the same today and forever. And so we need to remember that. There'll be times when we look at this book and we'll say, I don't, man, I don't know what that looks like here. And understand, I'm with you. I don't. But as I, I like to keep reminding people when Robbie said that a few weeks ago, we'll probably just keep calling that up when he was talking about a little bit in the early church and saying, well, what does it look like? Well, I don't know what, exactly what it looks like, but it looks like something. And it should look like something that is worthy of our calling. It has to. Because the early church didn't do all the things that we will read about in their own strength. They were regular people. That's another thing to keep in mind. It's the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, and the same humanity. In the Gospels, we see Jesus demonstrate what true humanity is. And it can be easy, we talked about this before, it can be easy in the Gospels to look at the life of Jesus and say, well, that's easy for him, he's Jesus. Like son of God, fully divine, fully human, without sin. And we look at our own lives and we say, I'm not that. And we've confronted that before. We've talked about how the way Jesus lived was not superhuman. It was truly human. Sin doesn't make us more human. Sin dehumanizes us. That's a worldview shift that we have to keep in mind. And so we can confront that in the Gospels. The way we see Jesus, he is our example. But it's in the back of our minds. But here in Acts, there's no such excuse. Like these people that we read about in Acts are just like you and me. They were rich. They were poor. They were educated and uneducated. Right? There was elite class and low class. People who had been seen as moral people and people who had been seen as immoral people. There were people who lived with a, a, a privileged status due to their citizenship or ethnicity. Like, and using, like Paul did, with using his Roman citizenship kind of as a trump card in Acts 16. And there were people who were oppressed and marginalized because of their ethnicity. There were people who held worldly power and people who were powerless. 
There were people who were wise and people who were considered foolish. People who were powerful and people who had no power. But they gave up all of those identities and exchanged them for an identity in Christ. They gave up all of the status and their networking and relationships out there for relationships and community with their brothers and sisters. It was in this context that Paul said, there's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, because that is what was happening. All regular people filled with a supernatural Holy Spirit that was transforming them and equipping them for the greatest mission in the history of the world that is still going on today. In that passage in Acts 4 that we'll get to eventually, when it talks about Peter and John being common and uneducated men, it says they were, they were astonished it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So one of the things we have to remember about the early church is that they measured whether someone was a Christian or not by the evidence of the Holy Spirit in them. It was because they had been with Jesus. They didn't judge them based on just doctrinal statements or positions that they held. What they wanted to know is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Is he alive in you? Is he producing fruit in you? Is he changing you? And by the way, the number one sign that they saw of that was actually boldness. Most frequently, when they knew someone had been dwelled in by the Holy Spirit, they saw a boldness in them. A boldness that can only come when you believe what Jesus said and what he did and that he rose from the dead. And that the same Spirit that rose him from the dead dwells in them. It's the only thing that can make sense of the boldness that you see. So when we read this, please remember that we have far more in common with the early church than we have differences. So when we just look at those first few verses, we are reminded that Luke lays this foundation. And we see kind of the synopsis. We say previously on the kingdom of God. And we think about all he began to do. And remember that he said, greater works than these will you do. And we remember that the, the things he taught about himself in the kingdom, the mission that he gave his disciples, and how he says, you are my witnesses of these things. And he gives proof that he rose from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we too have heard what Jesus has taught. And we too have seen what he has done, both in scripture and in our lives through our testimony. 
And we too are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And the rest of this is how all of that plays out, walking in renewal together as the church. The church, as we read through this story of how the Holy Spirit worked to form the early church, we should be filled with hope and excitement. We should not find in these pages methods and, and scripts, but rather we should find ourselves in awe and wonder at what the Spirit has done and what he still does today, and we should find ourselves in these pages. As we see their difficulties and their trials, we should find hope to face our trials today. As we see their unity as a body coming from every possible, imaginable corner of society. As we see their unity as they came together. We should find our hope for unity today. As we see their radical generosity as they gave everything as if they didn't own anything but that it was all in common. As we see that and they dealt with poverty in their communities, we would find hope and inspiration to deal with poverty today. As we see the gospel transform lives in the unlikeliest of places that we would find hope that he can still do that today. We've talked about this before. The people that you think are so far from God, they are not. God can awaken them like that. And he invites you to be a part of that. Because as we see normal, regular people take radical steps of faith and be used in incredible ways, we would see the same thing as we raise up and train and send out missionaries to the end of the earth and across the street. And as we see the prayers of the faithful be answered in power, that we would be moved to pray as a church with power. And why do we believe that any of these things are possible? Because we've heard what he has said. We have seen what he has done. And he has risen from the dead. He is worthy above all names. And we get to live this story out. This is going to be a good year. We're going to start now. Let's pray. Father, give us faith. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, even as objections are popping up in our minds, Holy Spirit, would you just thwart those? Would you push them to the side? Would you call them out for what they are, which are lies from the enemy? Would you help us to just see you, to see the kingdom, to believe in you? Would you fill us with the Holy Spirit? 
God, forgive us for ways that we have marginalized and where we have prioritized our own wisdom, our own will, our own strength over the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Forgive us for that. Help us to turn and to receive that. And Lord, I pray that among this church family, whether here in person or online watching, that you would raise up missionaries. That you would raise up people who would go to the ends of the earth and people who would go across the street. You have been doing this, God, and we, we love it and we ask for more. God, we pray that you would let us see great things. That we would read the book of Acts and that it wouldn't feel distant or foreign or unfamiliar, but that it would resonate with us. That we would see, that we would find ourselves in these pages and that we would see in the early church our brothers and sisters with whom we have far more in common than you would think over 2,000 years. And that we would be reminded day after day after day that Lord Jesus, you are Lord, you are King. We have heard your words. We have seen your works. You have risen from the dead. You are worthy. And we believe. Help us in our unbelief. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe, Lord Jesus. Amen.